It's probably one of the few things that unites all people across the world, whatever background we may come from, whatever nationality we have, whatever language we speak, whatever education or income, whatever category we want to try and label one another. There's some things which unite us, which are common to us all. And this is one of them, that life can be hard, that suffering is real, that pain intersects every single person's life. And all of us, whoever we may be, need a way to be able to navigate it and to see our way through it. It's often said that either we've just come out of suffering, we're in the midst of it, or about to enter it. That's probably too simplistic and far too bleak as well. I think more, though, is a thread at any given point in our life where there is some kind of trial, difficulty, pain or suffering. At many points it's at quite a low level, at other points it spikes high and it dominates our experience. But it's just as much as this idea of suffering or pain or difficulty in life is common to us all, many of us also will ask questions about its seeming uneven distribution. Why some people seem to face so much difficulty in life, some areas of our world, and some of us seem to get off so lightly. The point is life is hard, isn't it? Suffering is real. Pain is everybody's experience. A sick child, murdered multitudes, senseless violence, a crushing cancer, religious hatred, a fractured relationship. The Anglican prayer book is right when it talks about an uncertain and transitory life. David Atkinson, Bishop of Thetford, though well known as someone who writes on ethics and philosophies and some of these bigger questions of life, in his comments on the book of Ruth, this Old Testament story that we're beginning today, he writes this, quote, Undoubtedly the greatest threat to belief in the providence of God is the reality of evil in our world. Not only the concentration camps, but the pain of bereavement, the headlines of another devastating famine or hurricane, the gross inequalities of opportunity and fortune in different parts of the world, our neighbours' cancer. All these pose the question, where is God? Christian or not Christian, whatever faith background, wherever we might label or put ourselves on a spectrum, the question, where is God, is probably one we've asked or had asked of us. Put another way, it's this question. Can I trust and love and serve a God who has dealt me this painful hand? Well, in chapter one of this story, Ruth, Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, answer this question, but not from some safe academic ivory tower. They speak from the trenches of their own personal agony. And they speak with a hope-filled but brutally honest knowledge of who God is. The chapter begins, the first couple of paragraphs, sentences one to five, with a description of the reality of Naomi's suffering. And it is really difficult, really bleak. It begins, if you like, at the national level or political level. Sentence one, uh, the story opens, in the days when the judges ruled. Well, the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, articulates a period of time in Israel's history. It's a little bit like saying the swinging 60s. It's a period, an era, in which Israel had no real king. They were ruled, if you like, by judges. And yet it was 
a time around 400 years long of incredible unrest, of very little law and order. Not a safe time in that nation. In fact, the book of Judges, which records that whole 400-year history, is in our Bibles just before Ruth. Ruth is the appendix of that period of time. And the repeated refrain through the book of Judges, which is also its closing sentence, says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. A really bleak and a really difficult time in Israel's history is where Naomi lived. And there's a famine, we're told, in the land. So the, men, so the man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Well, there's a couple of surprises about the famine that pushes Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife, from their own town of Bethlehem, across their nation and into the adjoining nation, Moab. The first surprise that there's a famine is this is in the area of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means the house of bread or the house of plenty. It was named that because of the hugely abundant, fertile agricultural ground that was in that area. There was no need for there to be a famine. The fact they flee to Moab, which is less than 50 miles away from Bethlehem, means that probably the famine is not because of environmental reasons, a drought for example, but it's because of the unrest and the inability for there to be infrastructure for this fertile ground to produce and distribute the food which it should and could produce. The other surprise that there's a famine is not simply because it's in this highly fertile area, but because this family, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, are described in sentence two as Ephrodites, which literally means the landowners. So they're not subsistence farmers, hand to mouth, just making ends meet. They were wealthy and established. And yet the famine is so severe Even these wealthy landowners living in Bethlehem, the house of bread, have to flee because of this famine. It's a questionable decision made by Elimelech, the husband. Ironically, his name means God is king, but it seems like he's not behaving like that. Because he flees Bethlehem and Israel and moves to the country of Moab, which borders Israel, but was Israel's arch, arch enemy. So much so that earlier on in this period of the Judges, it's recorded in Judges chapter 3, Moab had invaded Israel and taken them, enslaved them in essence, for around 18 years before finally a revolt had led to Israel becoming an independent nation again. And this is where they flee. A very dangerous decision. They move from being landowners in the fertile area of Bethlehem, wealthy and well-established, to living as refugees in Moab, a country they didn't know the culture or the language, had no connections in which could help them get established, and were in fact people moving in to their arch enemy's area. And of course, if Elimelech's name means God or Yahweh is king, then it would be pretty hard to hide that they were from Israel and were living now in Moab. But Naomi's suffering gets even more intense. And now, of course, we're talking about some very personal and real realities that will pain many of us. Because in sentences three, four and five, we read first of Naomi's husband, Elimelech's death, And then we read of her two sons' death. Occurs over a ten-year period, we're told. And verse 5 finishes with the phrase, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Extraordinarily painful and difficult. Life is hard. Suffering is real. Poor old Naomi. By the end of the chapter, we have this little piece of poetry she writes, sentence 20 to 21, as she arrives back in Bethlehem. But what that poetry is, 
is her eulogy. She's composed it for her funeral. At this point in her life, she sees no hope. She's given up and she simply journeyed home to die. See, friends, the Bible is not blind to pain. The Bible doesn't wear rose-tinted spectacles when it views suffering. The Bible doesn't whistle in the dark to the horrors in our world. In fact, if any book honestly looks at our world and honestly understands the human condition and the human life, it is the Bible. God knows and he understands and he's recorded it for us here. And these two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, from the trenches of their own agony and their own struggle and pain, teach us three unshakable and life-sustaining truths about God in suffering, which allow us to journey through suffering and survive. Let me give them to you. The first is about love. That suffering is not a denial of God's love. He's not being cruel or unkind, or become distant and disengaged. Suffering is not a denial of God's love. Ruth, in fact, teaches us this. As the story unfolds, Naomi chooses to return to Bethlehem. She's heard there's food now in Bethlehem. She decides to journey back. As we see, it's a a bleak journey back because she's anticipating simply dying and being buried there. And her two daughter-in-laws, their husbands, remember, are now dead. Her two daughter-in-laws both initially show a real commitment to her and they both begin the journey back to Bethlehem. Remember, they themselves are from Moab, so they now, by leaving Moab and heading towards Israel and moving into enemy territory, Ophra, one of the uh, daughter-in-laws, she heeds Naomi's insistence that she's foolish to travel to Bethlehem. She should go back to Moab find a new husband and get established there. And she takes what is sensible advice and Ophra returns to Moab. But Ruth, we're told, sentence 14, uh, sentence uh, 16, sorry, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there be buried. And remarkable commitment, especially if she knew that Naomi was travelling back to Bethlehem to be buried. Where you die, I will die, she says. But it's a statement of faith, isn't it? Perhaps from her husband, perhaps from Naomi. She's learnt about Israel's God, the one true God. She makes a statement of trust in that God and she exhibits that through her faithfulness and loyalty to Naomi. Ruth here is there to teach us what God is like, about the faithfulness of God. In fact, Ruth's name itself means faithful or steadfast companion. She's described as exhibiting the steadfast love of God in chapter 3, through the way that she has loved Naomi here. She's there to remind us that suffering is not a denial of God's love. Now, in the midst of suffering, Naomi can't see this love. Naomi is blind to it. By the end of chapter 2, the love of God is so brilliantly blazed before her that the blindness is taken away. But at this point, in the middle of suffering, like so many of us will know, seeing the love of God is so difficult. But suffering is not a denial of that love. Well, if Ruth teaches us about the love of God, Naomi teaches us about the sovereignty of God. The second thing here is that suffering is not a denial of God's sovereignty. He's not weak, unable to achieve what he wants to achieve in our lives. He's still sovereign and powerful. 
Look at this eulogy that Naomi has composed, 20 to 21. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, she told them, but call me Mara, that means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do you see four times? Twice Lord, twice Almighty, four times in those couple of short sentences. She references God's sovereignty over all of her life, over the sweet and over the bitter, over the circumstantial and over the sin. God is sovereign. The author of this great story is at pains to emphasise that as well. You remember I said Elimelech means God is king. Well, deliberately the author at the beginning of each point of the story, the beginning of each chapter, if you like, where the story transitions to something new, he uses that name Elimelech. Elimelech, God is king, God is sovereign is what it means. Whether it's over the pain of famine and destitution and becoming a refugee, Elimelech, God is king. Whether it's even through the loss of our husband and the sheer pain, distress and hopelessness of losing your children. God is king. He's sovereign. The beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, as hope begins to take shape. Elimelech, God is king. The beginning of chapter 3, as a marriage is on the cards and things have really turned around in Naomi's life. God is king. And then the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 3, Elimelech. As a child is born, as there's great celebrations, as a no Naomi is re-established in a safe and secure environment, again, the author tells us, Elimelech, God is king. Ruth here teaches us about God's love in the middle of suffering. Naomi teaches us about God's sovereignty in the middle of suffering. And then the narrator, the storyteller, teaches us about God's wisdom, that suffering is not a denial of God's wisdom. He has not made a mistake in your life. He's not got it wrong. He's too wise to make mistakes. We see that because there's a thread right the way through the story of God's hand of providence and provision, his purpose in their lives. It moves from a famine to verse 6, a hint of God's provision of food back in Bethlehem, to sentence 22, they arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. God's hand of providence and, and sovereignty working there. And the narrator is at great pains in sentence 22 to emphasise that Naomi returns from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess. That there's something that God is working, and we'll see what it is in a moment, which required a woman from Moab to come to trust God and return into the heart of Israel. And the way that that's been accomplished is through the tapestry of Naomi's suffering and difficulty. See, friends, I know there are horrors in the world. I know there's horrors in some of the, our lives, and I do understand but I also know there is a loving and wise God who is in absolute control, even of those horrors. And I know that the alternatives that we might be drawn to, to suggest somehow that God is not as strong as a cancer or the economy or nature or a bullet, or to suggest that somehow God is not loving, he's cruel, or he's weak, or he's not wise but foolish. These alternatives are not true, and nor, of course, are they comforts. Giving Satan some kind of decisive control or ascribing pain to random chance is not helpful, not true, and not comforting. When the world crashes in, we need the reassurance that God reigns in love. 
even there. And he has a glorious purpose that far outstrips our finite horizons and our stunted imaginations. Suffering is not a denial of God's love, it's not a denial of God's sovereignty, and it is not a denial of God's wisdom and his work in our lives. William Cowper maybe captures this best in poetry, and often it's poetry that speaks better than prose when it comes to these questions. He was a 19th century hymn writer. In his years growing up, he lost five of his siblings to disease or accident. He himself was suffered from depression and spent a couple of years in what was then known as an assailant asylum. For 18 years, he actually lived opposite John Newton, the ex-slave trader who became a, an Anglican minister. They became good friends. John Newton, most famous for writing Amazing Grace. William Cowper also wrote a whole number of hymns and novels as well. This is what he says, reflecting on his own suffering as he writes a hymn. He says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. He'd learnt, hadn't he, to trust God and to follow God in difficult situations. But if you're anything like me, there's a question that perhaps sits in your mind, something I've said that you want evidence for. I've talked about God's love and his sovereignty and his wisdom, even in suffering, taught us by Ruth and Naomi from their own furnace of fierce, fierce suffering. It's the question, well, what are the glorious purposes in suffering that Naomi experienced? Chapter 1 ends very bleakly. She's in Bethlehem, yes, but she's there to die with her eulogy all composed. Where is God's glorious purpose? Where is that flower that is so sweet in Naomi's life? What is God doing? Well, the answer may not reside in chapter 1. And it doesn't actually, to some extent, reside even in Naomi's own life. But we do see God's glorious purposes from a more eternal and lengthy hindsight. Do you remember how chapter 1 began in the days when the judges ruled and that description of that period of Israel's history where they had no king and everyone did what they wanted? Well now flick to the end of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4 in the last couple of sentences. We have this genealogy that includes Boaz who becomes Ruth's husband, includes their child Obed that Ruth bore that was Naomi's grandson and then ends with David as the last word of the whole book. Well, David, 400 years after Naomi ever lived, this is an appendix that's been added on to the story, David was Israel's greatest king. And before Israel's greatest king, David is even born. He is a king from all nations. He has a great, 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 whatever it may be, grandmother who came from Moab. And if Moab, Israel's greatest enemy, is included in David's lineage, well, who is excluded? David is the king of Israel for all nations. That's why the end of, of chapter 1, verse 22, is so important in its emphasizing that Ruth the Moabitess 
came to Bethlehem with Naomi, that what God was weaving and working through Naomi's suffering in his love and his sovereignty and his wisdom was a woman from Moab would come to Bethlehem full of faith in God and be the great, great, great grandmother of the greatest King David, a king raised for all nations. And of course, if we look beyond just a few hundred years after Naomi's life to a few thousand years, we see that great King David becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in Jesus' own list of ancestors, we read of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi's involvement there in the creation by God of Jesus, the king of all nations. If Moab is included, who's not included? That a king from all nations in their genealogy is a king for all nations, a glorious purpose. But of course, only hindsight shows it. Not even within Naomi's own lifetime does she get to see that. Only from an eternal perspective does she see it. Because our stunted imaginations and limited horizons can never see what God is doing and purposing. But we can trust his nature and character. He is loving and sovereign and he is wise. And so we come back to the question I asked at the beginning, can I trust and love and serve a God who has dealt me this painful hand? Well what we can know is he remains sovereign and loving and wise. Too loving to wish us harm ultimately, too wise to have made a mistake too strong to not achieve his purposes. And though that may not explain and certainly won't remove suffering from our lives, it does give certainty and it does give hope in what God is doing as he weaves a tapestry of great beauty where the dark threads are as important as those richly coloured, as needed as the gold and the silver. A tapestry that just as in Naomi's suffering will speak of the glories of Jesus and ultimately our joy as we look back from eternity and see exactly what he was doing.